This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Before you mash that fast forward button to move to the beginning of today's episode, I'd like to quickly tell you about some ways you can support the show and everything that I'm doing right now. You can support the show on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash Chase Thomas Writer. Again, just go on over to patreon.com slash Chase Thomas Writer. Become a patron for as little as $5 a month. Or you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and a review. It's incredibly important with the way iTunes works. So if you have a second, please leave a rating and or review and subscribe on iTunes. Uh, you can listen to the show on Spotify, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, Google Play, and wherever else you get your podcast, you can check out chasethomaspodcast.com. That is all my previous episode, a link to my newsletter, and all my articles that I've written. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at chase double underscore Thomas. You can like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash chase Thomas writer, or you can just tell a friend you found this independent sports podcast that they should check out too. Thank you for listening. You're all the best. And I think we've reached the point in this intro where my uncle Darren can play me in. All right, let's go. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Chase Thomas podcast. We're recording today's episode on a Thursday afternoon. And first up, from the birthplace of college football, where we're one year away from Greg Schiano returning to the program as head coach to replace Chris Ash and rejoin his offensive coordinator. The last time the Rutgers offense had a good offense with Ray Rice and a bunch of other guys. And uh, to kind of get a good handle on what's going on with Chris Ash's Rutgers Scarlet Knights, Lance Glenn's here. Lance, good afternoon. How are you? I'm good, Chase. How are you? I don't know if uh, the Shiano in a year uh, prediction might come true, but... um... You know, the offense is looking new under John McNulty, and I'm excited to see uh, what Chris Ash and McNulty have up their sleeve. Where are you at with this? Because I think we need to talk about this. So Chris Ash, he, his first year, um, he's a defensive mind. He came from Ohio State, all that. But the defense is fine. Like, they're making progress. They're getting more and more talent. But he hasn't found the right guy at OC yet. And this is year three, and year three is a big year for – coaches like it's just like if you don't have the kind of turnaround he's i think six and 18 since he's been there um it's they need to make progress and the schedule at least for the first half uh is very winnable for them they're going to be favored in a lot of games and um there's a march for six i feel like for Rutgers this year and that's big for chris ash but uh they brought back john mcnulty took him out of the nfl he had just a really good offense with highlighted by ray rice and one of my favorite college quarterbacks in the mid two thousands, Mike Teal. Uh, people forget about Mike Teal and his uh, his great numbers with Ray Rice at Rutgers. But um, he passed like thirty five hundred yards one year. I think he had a QB rating of one forty eight. Like Mike Teal was actually pretty good. Um, Giovanni is not a Mike Teal 
I feel like. Uh, maybe one day, but uh, not right now. But where are you at with the OC changes? Like, it started off with the spread, They and that guy, I believe, is off to Texas now. They brought in Jerry Kill last year, and he retired again, so then they had to make another replacement. And they were just like, you know what? Let's uh, Nostalgia is a powerful drug. Let's go back to McNulty. Maybe he can reignite the fire in the Rutgers offense. Yeah, yeah. So you you brought up a couple things, and I want to I want to hit on a couple things as well. You know, this is not this offensive coordinator uh, carousel really has not been a an only Chris Ash thing. Back uh, before uh, Coach Ash came in, you know, Kyle Flood, and even the later years of Shiano. I think this is Rutgers' ninth offensive coordinator in the last nine years. Oh so my God. The Scarlet Knights over the past real, really decade have not been able to consistently keep an offensive coordinator for multiple years. In fact, the last one to do so was John McNulty when he was the offensive coordinator, uh, like you mentioned, you know, with Ray Rice and with Mike Teal. He was the last OC to be here for more than one season. Yeah. And I think McNulty, you know, when Jerry Kill retired and there were a bunch of names being mentioned uh, to replace him, you know, McNulty was one of those guys. They also mentioned Noel Mazzone. They also mentioned Phil Longo. But I think McNulty was the right choice. He's someone who knows what it takes to win here at Rutgers, someone who knows New Jersey. And bringing in a guy from the NFL, I think, when you talk about recruiting, can only, you know, benefit. You're talking about a guy who worked with the Chargers, who worked with the Titans, you know, who knows what it takes to win, who knows what it takes to run a pro-style offense. So I think he was ultimately the right choice. Uh, to bring in as offensive coordinator. And you mentioned a couple things, and you, you started off, you know, you said that this is kind of like a march for, for six for Rutgers, right? You know, six and six is, is the ultimate goal, or, you know, six wins at least is the ultimate goal to get to a bowl game, to get bowl eligible. And you brought up a good point. You hit it, you know, you hit the nail on the head. The first half of the schedule, really the first eight games for the Scarlet Knights, is where they're going to have to win those six games. You, you have the three non-conference games, and, and in Texas State, Buffalo, and Kansas, game two, you have Ohio State. And even without Urban Meyer, I think we could both agree that Rutgers isn't going to go to Columbus and beat Ohio State. But they need to be 3-1 and one after the, the, the first four games. And then they have Illinois, Maryland, and Indiana in some order. And those are three mm-hmm. winnable games. Is there and Northwestern at home. Like, and that's North- a toss-up, I guess. But then that last four. Go ahead and X out the last four. <laughs> The last four, the last four are, are gauntlet. I, I don't remember the order, but I think it's what it's Michigan, at Wisconsin. I have it in front of me. It's at Wisconsin. It's Michigan at home, Penn State at home, and then at Michigan State. Just brutal. Yeah. So uh, unless you get an upset, which you know very well could happen, we've seen upsets happen before in college football. Obviously, um, it, Rutgers is not going to be favored in any of those games. But those first eight games, and you brought up the Northwestern one at home. It's very reasonable for the Scarlet Knights to be. Six and two, maybe even if they, you know, are able to beat Northwestern seven and one after those first. Oh my God, seven and one! This is incredible. Seven and one Rutgers. Look, hey, it's happened before. Uh, It happened when John McNulty was here. Yeah, Um, and it wouldn't, you know. So it's it's very possible. And with everything going on at a ten, with everything happening at Maryland now, um, obviously they have a lot more to deal with um, than just playing football. So. The, the opportunity for the Scarlet Knights is there to get the six wins. And I think you mentioned the defense is fine. It's, I think, going to be one of the best defenses in the conference this year. But the offense is where the Scarlet Knights have struggled. And I think John McNulty was ultimately the right guy. He has pieces around that could, you know, uh, break out, pieces around that could work, that could run his style offense. And it'll be interesting to see come this first game um, on Saturday, September 1st, against Texas State, what it all really looks like. 
Who do you think is going to end up being the quarterback who starts in the most games this fall for Rutgers? Do you have a read on that? I know that they have not named a starter yet, but what is uh, your perspective on what happens with the quarterback situation? So everyone is anticipating that the starter will actually be announced later tonight. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, so it, it'll be interesting to see what Chris, uh, what Chris Ash ultimately uh, announces. I do think, and I think most people will agree with me, that true freshman uh, Arter Sitkowski will be named the starting quarterback. Now, Sitkowski is a guy who was originally a played at played at Old Bridge uh, here in New Jersey, uh, then transferred his senior year of high school to IMG Academy in Florida, played at IMG Academy, committed to Miami, then decommitted and then committed to back home, you know, in New Jersey to Rutgers. Um, Gio and he was a big get for them, right? He was a, what, a four-star, I want to say? Four-star, yeah, four-star quarterback, uh, big get for them. Again, a lot of people were originally disappointed when he committed to Miami because Rutgers was going hard after him. But they, they stayed on him even when he was uh, committed to Mark Richt in the U, and they ultimately ended up getting him to, to flip and, and to switch to Rutgers. So he was a big get. A really, you can make an argument, the biggest quarterback recruit that Rutgers has had since Tom Savage. Um, back in 2009. So, you know, he's a guy who is looked at really as, as the future, uh, for, uh, future at quarterback for the Scarlet Knights. Now, a lot of people think, and me included, think that future will start uh, Saturday, September 1st against Texas State. Now, you obviously have Gio Rochino returning, and he's a guy who the last two seasons did not start as the starter, or did not start the year as the starter. Chris Laviano originally started in Chris Ash's first year. Then last year, they brought in a grad transfer, Kyle Bolin from Louisville. But Gio, he's a great veteran to have around. He's some guy who, you know, is always uh, pushing the other quarterbacks. He's a great locker room presence, was voted a captain as well by the players. He's someone who, you know, is just a great, uh, a great leader. And whether or not he's the starter, he's going to be that leader. And he's going to be that guy that players really rally around. And he's going to be that guy that players really lean on, especially when adversity hits. Is it possible that we might see this season Geo, Arter, Sitkowski, as well as another quarterback, Jonathan Lewis? Yes, I think that's very possible. And I think there's a chance we might even see all three of them in the first game, depending on what the score is. But I do think the guy, going back to your original question, the guy that will start the most games for the Scarlet Knights this season, I think will be Arter Sitkowski. And frankly, I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up starting all 12. Does that... So if you're Chris Ash, how much of it, like just him being a, a freshman, like putting, because if he goes, let's just say like five and seven, because I mean, starting a true freshman, and it, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be something, there's going to be some bumps in the road and there's a lot of pressure on this offense to not be a 120th um, in offensive S&P plus this year. But when you have, when you're starting just a young quarterback, you don't really know how it's going to go. And Chris Ash kind of really needs to, the offense to move in the right direction. How much pressure is on Chris Ash to at least um, put together like a top 60, top 70 uh, offense uh, this year? And um, is there a number of wins that he needs to reach to really feel good about keeping his job this off season? Well, I'll start with your last question. Chris Ash, no matter how many games Rutgers wins, will keep his job this off season. Chris okay. Ash took over for Kyle Flood and, you know, Yes, Kyle Flood led Rutgers to, I think it was an 8-5 and five record in their first year in the Big Ten, but it was just downhill from there. Obviously, everyone knows about all the off-the-field issues that, that arose with Kyle Flood as head coach and that happened at Rutgers with the various arrests. 
So Chris Ash was really starting from zero when he took over. And yeah, they went two and 10 in his first year, four and eight last year, but you saw the progress even in the games they didn't necessarily win. For example, two years ago in his first year, the score, they lost 78, nothing to Michigan. Last year, it was 35, I believe, 17 to Michigan. So you saw the progress as they're starting to creep closer and, and the games are starting to get more competitive. So Chris Ash, regardless of what their record is this year, he will be the head coach. And I think people need to remember, you know, you had brought up Greg Schiano uh, earlier in the interview. Greg Schiano didn't make a bowl game, I believe, until his fifth year as Rutgers head coach. Now, he was obviously starting from a lot less than Chris Ash was. And, you know, Rutgers at that time was in the Big East. Now they're in the Big Ten. But Greg Schiano, he didn't, I think, I believe he didn't win his first conference game, his first Big East conference game, until his third season as Rutgers head coach. And Chris Ash just won three last year. So Rutgers, Pat Hobbs, the athletic director, is going to give Chris Ash as, really as much time as he needs to rebuild this program, to fix the off-the-field image, and, and to get this program to a Big Ten level, both offensively and defensively on a consistent year-to-year basis. When it comes to the offense, you know, look, that's been the biggest issue. And the biggest issue to specify has been Rutgers' Rutgers' inability to uh, get the big play, right? We haven't really seen under Chris Ash yet uh, those, you know, 60-yard bombs, those, you know, uh, 75-yard passes. We haven't really seen that. We've seen a couple of times Janarian Grant, who's now in the NFL, uh, in the Wildcat, Uh, run for, you know, 65 yards and a touchdown. We've seen, you know, kick returns and everything like that. But the reason, and and I'll go back to the last question with Sikowski, is a lot of us think Sikowski is going to start because he has the best arm and he has the the ability to hit those down-the-field passes, something that Gio um, isn't really the greatest at. And and Gio's limitations in the downfield passing game have really limited what the Scarlet offense has been able to do the last couple of years. So Sitkowski coming in and his big arm, a lot of Rutgers hands, me included, uh, we think that that'll help open up the offense. And, and John McNulty has said he wants to, to, to bring in the big play. He wants to add the big play to this offense. It's not going to be an offense that can consistently drive down in 10 play and 12 play drives where, you know, they take off seven to eight minutes off the clock. It's going to have to, at times, be a big play offense. And Archer Sitkowski, I think, brings the, the, the biggest impact to those big plays. Outside of Sitkowski, who is another name to watch? Because this is a very youthful receiving core. Like, they have a lot to replace there. Um, they do have a couple three stars that uh, can step up. But, like, who are you looking at um, on the outside who can help Sitkowski uh, have a good year one as the starter? So, so in Chris Ash's first full year of recruiting, you know, came over in 2016, uh, an abbreviated recruiting cycle. But in 2017, his first full year recruiting, he brought in a four-star wide receiver, Bo Melton. And Bo Melton is the guy who is going to be looked at to be that number one guy. Didn't have the greatest year last year. Again, you could make an argument partially because of, of quarterback play. Um, but he didn't have the greatest year last year. But he showed glimpses of his speed. And he has such speed on the outside. And, and he's going to be the guy that is going to need and is going to be looked at to make a connection early with Sikowski. And, and we've seen that connection already happen in the spring game. In that game, Arthur Sikowski, a, a great pass, frankly, and again, against, you know, a common, uh, against a common opponent, obviously, as, as the defense he faces all the time, but a great pass, a 75-yard bomb to Bo Melton, and they connected for a touchdown. And that's what Rutgers fans are really looking forward to seeing. Bo Melton, a great guy on the outside, you know, over six feet tall, could get up and jump with everyone and jump with the best of them. He's going to be that guy 
that Rutgers needs to break out on the outside if they want this passing attack to be a you know, big part of what they do and to really generate some big plays. If Bo Melton's not able to do it, they're going to start looking at guys, uh, someone like Hunter Hayek, who broke out as more of a slot receiver last year. Uh, maybe a guy like Everett Wormley, who's also in uh, Chris Ash's first uh, full recruiting class in 2017. But I think if all things go as planned, Bo Melton is going to be that guy that really breaks out as the outside and number one receiver for Rutgers. How is the 2019 recruiting class looking for Chris Ash? The 2019 recruiting class right now, they're set at quarterback. You know, they have two guys committed, one in Zamar Wise, uh, a local guy from New Jersey, and another in uh, Cole Snyder, a guy from New York. One thing Rutgers has done with all recruiting classes is they really loaded up in that secondary. And I think this year's secondary, as well as over the next couple of years, they have the ability to be one of the Big Ten's best. And Chris Ash didn't, you know, or hasn't neglected that um, that grouping in the 2019 class. A guy like uh, Donovan Bunch and Donald Williams, he have two three-star guys from New Jersey. He has committed to the Scarlet Knights. Uh, a couple linemen as well. The one big issue with recruiting so far for the Scarlet Knights under Chris Ash has been the defensive line. They've been able to, you know, really do well at linebacker, really do well at secondary, as I mentioned before. But it's just been tough for Rutgers to get those uh, early impact, uh, high-quality defensive line commits uh, to come. And there are a couple guys they're looking at. I know a guy like Jason Blissett. Uh, I believe he plays in New York. Um, he's someone that Rutgers is on early. If Chris Ash is able to figure out how to get these defensive line in, because, look, they lost Kamoko Ture. He was drafted in the second round of the uh, NFL draft. They lost Sebastian Joseph. He was drafted in the sixth round of the NFL draft. And yes, they have a couple of veterans on the defensive line now, but they're also very young and they're very inexperienced. So Chris Ash needs to find a way in this recruiting class and in future recruiting classes to really hit on the defensive line because out of all the positions that, that have been recruited and that are recruited, the defensive line has really been the one where this coaching staff has struggled to get in you know, early impact guys. So why is that though? Why are they struggling to get defensive line help in the recruiting class? Well, I, I think when you look at you know, defensive line, you, it's all about recruiting, you know, who you can get. And mm-hmm. Rutgers, obviously, you know, the, the four-star and five-star defensive linemen, it's not, they're going to go to the big schools. They're going to go to the Alabamas, the Ohio States, the Michigans, the Penn States. And, and Rutgers realizes that. But those big schools say there's, you know, five, 10, 15 of them that are going to get those four and five-star quality defensive linemen that can impact early on. The rest of the 100 schools are all fighting for these three-star guys. So instead of fighting with 10 schools, you're fighting with 50 schools to get these guys. So it, it, Chris Ash in his, in his past recruiting classes has, gotten, has brought defensive linemen in. Obviously, you can't go without bringing any defensive linemen in. Uh, but it's just those early impact guys. And I think you know because Rutgers right now at least isn't going to get those four- or five-star defensive linemen, those three-star guys, it's taken them a lot longer to develop. You know, some of them have dealt with injuries. A guy like Mike Tverdov for Rutgers, for example, he dealt with an injury last year. He was out uh, and had to sit his freshman year as opposed to potentially making an impact. So a couple have dealt with injuries. A couple, you know, have redshirted, but it's just taken them a little bit longer to develop. So I think once Rutgers shows that they could develop these defensive, defensive linemen on a consistent basis, especially defensive linemen that Chris Ash has brought in, once they show they can develop and once they show that they could, you know, potentially vault them to an NFL career, I think that'll open the eyes of other defensive linemen recruits, and it'll help Rutgers in that, in that realm of getting the D-line uh, committed. 
So ultimately, how do you see this season ending up for Rutgers? What do you have a win total? Do you have some offensive and defensive uh, efficiency ratings that uh, you're going to keep in mind? Like, oh, I hope we get to this number and then it's a success. Like, uh, how are you approaching the season from that regard? So I'll start with win total, right? Look, this season, we mentioned it before. Everyone, they had two wins in their first year. They had four wins in their second year. The most logical step up is obviously six wins now in year three. And I think that's what a lot of people are expecting, anticipating. I think Chris Ash, that's the expectations he set as well. Um, they want to be bowl eligible. They very, they have a very good opportunity to become bowl eligible, as we talked about before. The key for them, obviously, are winning the three non-conference games, Texas State in game one, then they play uh, Kansas and Buffalo um, with Ohio State in between Texas and, uh, Texas State and Kansas. So if they're 3-1 and one after their first four games, then things are headed in the right direction. Then for Rutgers, you know, come the toss-up games, the Illinois, the Indianas, the Marylands, you know, add Northwestern to that category as well. You realistically think there are four toss-up games. In order for Rutgers to be bowl eligible, they need to win three of those four. If they're able to do that, if they're able to, you know, they play Maryland away, but they play Indiana and Illinois both at home. So if you think they could get the Indiana and Illinois games, considering they're both at High Point Solution Stadium, then that's five wins right there. That means out of the Maryland and Northwestern game, they have to win one. They play Northwestern at home, on homecoming. It's going to be a good crowd. A lot of people are going to be amped up for it, especially if that's an opportunity for win number six, because we mentioned it before, that last four games, it's going to be tough for the Scarlet Knights to pull out a win against Michigan, Michigan State, Penn State, and Wisconsin. But I think realistically, if I had to make a prediction right now, I think the Scarlet Knights go 6-6. Six and six. I think they do find a way to win three of those four toss-up games. I think with everything happening at Maryland now, um, that may vault the Scarlet Knights over the Terps, uh, depending on how that whole coaching situation obviously works out. And I think they end up beating Indiana and Illinois at home. They'll win their non-conference games and go 6-6. Six and six. In terms of the offense and defense, look, I think all Rutgers fans, all we want to see is offensively just the team improve. Obviously, scoring-wise, I think they averaged just about 20 points last year. Obviously, that needs to, that needs to improve. Um, this is a team that wants to be built on the run. They have John Hillman transfer over from Boston College uh, as a grad transfer. He's in now. A guy in Raheem Blackshear who showed he's more of a shifty type of, of running back. Uh, a guy in a freshman, Isaiah Pacheco, uh, who could do a lot of damage on the ground as well. There's a lot of big things expected from him. Uh, so this team is a, one that wants to run it, but you know we've show, we've seen in the past that they haven't been able to develop a a, a, a passing game and a big play game. And if they're able to do that, it'll just add another dimension to the offense. And defensively, this team is going to be sound. I think they have one of the best secondaries in the conference. The linebacking group is is just as good as the secondary. Really, they return, um, I believe all three starters and they brought in a guy um, where they bring back a guy in Tyreek Knights Williams, who was a starter at the beginning of last season and got hurt before uh, the season began. So they're set at linebacker. The one question is going to be the defensive line. If, if the defensive line, if they have a, a steady rotation and can get some depth early in the year in that defensive line, it'll really help work things out. And I think with Jay Neiman at defensive coordinator, this is, you know, he's been with Chris Ash every year. They've been at, uh, at Rutgers. I think he's going to devise, uh, some way to help get some pressure off of the defensive line and to and to help um, you know either make it more of a three four defense where he gets all four linebackers on at the same time or or find some exotic blitzes to help take some def take some pressure off the defensive line and really uh, and really help the front seven in that matter. So I think again back to your question, I think six and six is what the Scarlet Knights will go, and I think uh, they'll go bowling. 
Okay. That's a win though, right? For Chris Ash in year three. It, it is. It's most definitely a win. Um, again, two in year one, four in year two. The most logical next step is is, is six in year three. It, it's definitely a win. And I said it before, Greg Schiano, you know, he's always compared, or Chris Ash has always been compared to, to Greg Schiano in, in terms of their rebuilds. Greg Schiano didn't make a bowl game until year five. So, you know, Chris Ash would be ahead of the curve if you want to compare them. Chris Ash would be ahead of the curve uh, getting to a bowl game in year three. So it would definitely be a big win. But as, as we mentioned before, uh, Chris Ash, regardless of how many games Rutgers wins this year, will most definitely be the head coach next season. So I have to ask, because I remember this very clearly. I remember where I was when I kept looking up at the screen and seeing the score. Do you remember where you were and what you were doing when Rutgers played Michigan two years ago? So funny story with that, actually. So I uh, was a student back then. I'm no longer now. Um, but mm-hmm. I was a student back then, and I was a, uh, the sports director of the school radio station, WRSU. And we broadcast all the home and away football games. And I was, in fact, on the broadcast of that Michigan game. Uh, I was doing play-by-play. Oh, no. back, and it was, yeah, it was, it was rough. Um, it was a lot of time filling. It was a lot of filling time, um, especially in the second half. Uh, when it really got out of hand, um, yeah, it was it was not a fun place to be. But you know, I think I was mesmerized. Say that again. I was mesmerized. I remember just I, I was like, I I know there's other games going on, but I have to watch this. I can't believe this is happening. Like this is a big t- like this is not Michigan playing. <laughs> not to put a damper on this Rutgers podcast, but I just remember. Hey, you know what? It's a positive spin because they've come a long way from uh, getting beat like seventy two to nothing. It uh. It was insane. It was just one of the more insane things that I've ever watched. It, it, it definitely was. It's a game, you know, that unfortunately I'll never forget, uh, especially being on the call. Um, but, you know, you mentioned it. it. This team has come a long way from that. And, look, 78 to nothing turned into, I believe, 35-17 last year. So the, and, and last year they played uh, at the big house. So they went to Michigan and, and only lost by 18 last year. So uh, progress is definitely being made. Uh, that's 78 nothing. I, in fact, asked Chris Ash about it uh, before uh, the Michigan game last season, and he, he told me it's in the past. They're not worrying about it. They're not talking about it. It's, it's not even in their minds. Um, all, they were, all they are focused on each and every week is the next game. They're not worried about what happened, you know, two years ago, three years ago, last season. It doesn't really matter to them. They're just focused on this year. And I, I think you're going to see, um, and I'm not saying it's going to guarantee, you know, wins over those top big 10 teams, but I think you're going to see more and more progress uh, and more competitive games against, you know, the upper echelon of the big 10. What was your favorite of the six yards they gained in the first half? <laughs> What was my favorite of the six yards they gained in the first half? They gained six yards in the first half? They did. Oh, wow. Um, look, I well, I got to remember. I don't remember the exact time, but I don't think they got a first down in that game until – it had to be in the second half. It was the fourth quarter. Yeah, fourth quarter. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were Rutgers brought- fans hugging. It was 71 to nothing, and they got a fourth – like, I remember the gif – of uh, the Rutgers fans, they panned to the <laughs> some fans, and they were hugging about the first down. It was, look, um, I, it was, it was, so, look, it was nice. I just look at it as it's Michigan getting revenge for when uh, the Scarlet Knights beat them in uh, 2014. That's how I look at it. Michigan mm-hmm. was mad that that the Scarlet Knights beat them in 2014. Uh, I remember I, it was my freshman year in co- of college. In fact, at Rutgers, we, we stormed the field. It was our first ever Big Ten win. Uh, so I just look at that game as Michigan taking out their anger, getting revenge against the Scarlet Knights, and, and that's all I look at it as. But um, 
I don't really have a favorite of the six yards that Rutgers gained in that first half, mm. but uh, okay, I would have to look back and see what my favorite play call was. But um, I mean, they know, were two I, of eighteen I, through the air too, so it was just it was great, great and, effort all around. You know, and look, that is the team again. That's a team that um, is is it's a much different team now than it was then. I'll tell you that uh, this this team in year three under Chris Ash is much different than the team in year one under Chris Ash. They're bigger, they're stronger, they're faster. Um, and again, they showed the progress last year, and I think they'll show even more progress this season. There you go. All right, man. Well, this is a great first appearance in the podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, no, thanks for having me, and uh, definitely we'll have to do it again once the, the Scarlet Knights hit six wins this year. We'll definitely have to do it again. There you go. Lance Glenn, we can find you on Twitter at Lance underscore G11. We can read you at, oh, actually listen to you, read you, whatever. Go to onthebanks.com, SB Nation's Rutgers site, um, and a bunch of other places. Is there anything else that uh, you'd like to plug before we go? I mean, yeah, you can listen to my uh, listen to our On The Banks podcast. Uh, you can go to onthebanks.com to find it. We're on Stitcher. Um, just search On The Banks podcast. We're on SoundCloud. Search OTB underscore SB Nation. And we're going to be on iTunes very, very soon. So look forward to that as well. But thanks again for having me, and I look forward to uh, doing it again soon. All right, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Chase. All right. We are back on the Chase Amos podcast, and I am joined now by Drew Schiller, the Warriors expert, not just Golden State, the Santa Cruz Warriors, and just everybody, like Damian Lee, Quinn Cook, Damian Jones, I mean, Damian James, rather, all kinds of guys. Patrick McCaw, um, now Jacob Evans, their first, the Warriors' first-round pick, who will probably be spending some time in uh, the G League this year. But, Drew, good afternoon. How are you? I'm doing well. I, I will, I'll let your listeners decide if I'm an expert by the end of this, because uh, that'll be up for them to uh, to determine. Yeah, that's fair. It's those are kind of those adjectives that you can't throw out. Yeah, when people are like, "I'm an expert at this way," well, other people get to decide that. It's like, uh, "I'm not an asshole." Well, other people get to decide that. You don't get to. Yeah, exactly. It's not a personal choice. You you don't get to just proclaim that and that be the case. No, it uh, other people's uh, perspective and opinion matters more than your own on that front. But I'm not worried about it. I've uh, been following you for years now, and I'm excited to talk a little Warriors because I think. So every offseason piece about the Warriors right now has been, or just the NBA in general, is that, you know, uh, this team won uh, the offseason, whether it's like the Raptors or the Celtics or the Nuggets or the Jazz. There are just a lot of teams that people are talking about, like, oh, what a great offseason they have. And the Lakers may be the biggest example of this, where it's like they got the best player in the world, so they had the best offseason. And I'm like, well... I don't think that's true. Like, I don't believe in that because guess what? Um, the Warriors re-signed Kevin Durant, who was 8-1 against LeBron in the NBA Finals uh, with the Warriors. And, you know, getting Kevin Durant back to play with Steph Curry for at least one more year, that's a pretty big thing, I think, considering they just won the NBA Finals again and uh, don't really be, they don't appear to be going anywhere, at least for one or two more years. And uh, LeBron's nice in LA, but they still have Michael Beasley and Lance Stevenson and Rajon Rondo and a bunch of other guys, and they're not going to compete with the Warriors. So the idea that like, well, it's a good starting block, that's fine. But like, they also got Boogie Cousins for the taxpayer mini mid-level exception for $5 million. Like, they're fine. There was a lot of turnover. They signed Jonas Drebko, Nick Young, 
Um, he's gone. And Omri Caspi in Memphis, he's out of there. But like for the most part, they basically kept the most important pieces in, on the team and then just added DeMarcus Cousins because sure, why not? I, I don't know. I feel exactly. like we're overthinking this. Like the Warriors won the offseason. Like the Lakers adding LeBron is cool and all, but like, no, the Warriors won the offseason. And I don't even understand how you could make an argument that it wasn't the Warriors. Well, you could maybe make a case for Oklahoma City for keeping Paul George just because if, if he had left, it would have left them in a pretty uh, precarious situation in terms of how to move forward. They may have then decided to uh, to test the market for uh, Russell Westbrook and just kind of do a full rebuild. But I do think it's funny how, how you said a second ago that the Lakers just simply won't be able to compete with the Warriors. And um, I agree with you. I think if you were to... Uh, talk to a bunch of uh, Lakers fans, I think they would disagree with you because I think right now they are blinded by the fact that uh, they added LeBron James. But this is not... They needed to get LeBron this summer to set themselves up for next summer Mm -hmm. because once Paul George decided to stay in Oklahoma City and the whole Kawhi Leonard saga was playing out and you know they clearly didn't want to give up a lot of their young assets in order to get Kawhi because they probably think they can just get him next summer. I actually think that um, you know, the Lakers were, were smart in that they didn't, once they got LeBron, but missed out on uh, PG and Kawhi, they signed a bunch of guys to one-year deals and they're going to be in good position next summer with cap flexibility. Um, you know, plus they'll be, th- those young guys will be one season uh, more seasoned. And uh, it's a big year for those guys to prove that they can uh, play uh, alongside LeBron and really uh, improve and show that they might have a chance to build around that core, even if they were to strike out in free agency again, uh, moving forward. But yeah, the Warriors adding DeMarcus is, um, is kind of a joke. I mean, that's the way that uh, I think a lot of people are looking at it. Like the Warriors don't need DeMarcus Cousins to win a championship, but now they're going to be able to do some stuff with him that they just simply have not been able to do in the past because they've never had it a big man like him. So I think it's going to be a storyline that will keep things fresh during the regular season, just assimilating cousins into the mix and seeing, seeing how he fits uh, personality wise, because him, Draymond, Kevin Durant out there together, there's a, there's going to be some times where the Warriors are, are fighting and yelling amongst each other more than they are the other team. But that's a good thing. Like all great teams have that kind of infighting. And it, we already know about that story behind closed doors with Draymond and Kerr and all that kind of stuff. I think that's healthy. I'm not really worried about right. that with the Warriors. Um, but well, I, I do think it's interesting that I didn't realize this, but did you know Jonas Drepko tore his Achilles early on in his Pistons career? He did. Yeah. Right after, uh, yeah, right after his rookie season. I had, I didn't, I hadn't remembered that until he signed with the Warriors mm-hmm. and then he uh, was introduced to the media, but he had a great rookie season in Detroit. Yeah, he was all, and, I think he was uh, all second team. And then it was, wasn't he a second team NBA, I think, at the time? Yeah, you know, I'm actually not rookie second team, 100% I'm pretty sure. sure on that. Yeah, but anyway, yeah. it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, and, then, <laughs> and then he tore his Achilles uh, the first preseason game of the 2010-11 year, which was... Uh, uh, it was against LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, Chris Bosh. It was their first ever game together in preseason and uh, tore that Achilles. And he's never fully been uh, quite the same, I guess you could say, uh, based on the expectations that he set uh, as a rookie. But mm-hmm. 
he's a good player, and he's yeah. gonna he's gonna have some games this year for the Warriors where uh, you're gonna wonder, God, they got this guy in the minimum. It's crazy. Well, half the roster is minimum players now. If you so uh, Spotrack is like my like I, I just love Spotrack. I probably spend way too much Great time website. on it, and just like looking at how teams are spending, and like the joke with Curse teams last couple of years in uh, Golden State is that he has this like why was he so invested in the big guys? Like he just keeps adding all of these centers and they're really thin on the wing. And we saw that um, later on in the Western conference playoff race where they were just without Iguodala, they were, they were just kind of exposed in a, in a troublesome way. But um, I do think it's interesting that Jarebko and cousins are on the same team now. And Jarebko is like, he is what I think everybody wishes Omri Caspi would be in that. Like they yep. both can shoot but like Caspi doesn't like to shoot and Jonas Drebko will shoot like him in Boston. He had no fear. And then Utah last year, he shot like 41% from three. So, you know, he's actually going to pull the trigger. So when they're driving and kicking, he's not going to just like pass up an open look like Omri would do, um, which is a plus, but it's also like, wow, we're really getting into the weeds here with the Warriors when we're like, oh, what can Jonas Jarebko add to this team? I know. Already has Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, <laughs> Kevin Durant, and DeMarcus Cousins. What can he do? But it is funny that you that you mentioned Caspi because uh, Caspi, when he came to the Warriors and signed with the Warriors, it was like, wow, the Warriors really added uh, some spacing because, yeah. you know, Caspi a couple years ago had a game when he was at Sacramento. He made nine threes against the Warriors, and it was like, wow, this guy – it's going to be unfair the way that they're able to um, to spread the floor. And then uh, Steve Kerr, you know, was was talking with Caspi about his role, and really, I think, told Caspi he he thinks that uh, Caspi can actually maybe have his biggest impact uh, in those second units, cutting off the ball. Mm-hmm. And Caspi, multiple times throughout the year uh, before the Warriors waved him late, he has become obsessed with cutting. Um, because I think in his mind, anybody can step out and, and shoot a, a three catch and shoot. But I think he really wanted to show just how good of an all around basketball player he was by being smart and making reads and cutting and making the extra pass. And I think he actually did it to his detriment because the Warriors needed him actually just to, to space the floor a little more. Are you surprised that Quinn Cook was able to carve out a niche on this team? Surprise, no, because uh, you mentioned how I uh, am pretty well versed with Santa Cruz. Mm-hmm. So I, I broadcast um, the Santa Cruz Warriors home games, uh, 24 games each year down in Santa Cruz. Excuse me, got a little cold here. Sorry about that. And, um, you know, I, I saw him score 40 plus multiple times uh, in the G League. And I know that people may say, well, it's the G League. It's, you know, obviously way below uh, the NBA level. And while that is, that is right. You can just you can just see the way he scores. Mm-hmm. It's not um, it's not empty calories. I mean, it's he's extremely skilled and talented. And then when he's up with Golden State for pretty much the whole month of March, you know, Steph was out and Quinn was starting, and Steve Kerr was telling him, "Look, go out there and think that you're Steph Curry. I mean, have that mindset where you have a, the ultimate green light, and no one's going to get mad at you for taking shots." And so doesn't surprise me at all that Quinn was able to to showcase his talent because he can shoot it. And um, if you can do that, it opens up everything else uh, in your game. He actually is very crafty around the rim. Uh, he's got a good uh, mid-range game. So offensively, uh, he can he can hold his own out there and then some. But the big thing for him in terms of sticking in the NBA long term will be his ability to defend 
uh, not only out on the perimeter fighting over screens, but he's got to be able to, you know, to be tough down on the block if, if bigger guards try to post him up. Are we talking about Quinn Cook or Seth Curry? Oh, we're talking about uh, Quinn Cook, actually. Mm. Yeah. Did I did I, did I uh, make him sound like he's Steph Curry? Uh, not Steph Curry. Seth Curry. I think what you just described. Oh, and that's Seth what I, Curry. Yes. Like, I love that Curry told him that. He's like, he was like, well, you know what? You can't be Steph, but go play like Seth Curry in the G League. Go light up 40 points because yeah. that's who he reminds <laughs> me of. Like, I think, I mean, obviously they both went to Duke and all that. But, like, um, I do think it's kind of funny that he's just, to me, like, Seth Curry-esque. And, like, your scouting report of Quinn Cook, I feel like, fits Seth to a T. Yeah, I think I think Seth is a little bit more of a of kind of a pure space to the floor kind of guy coming off screens uh, along the baseline. Although he has developed more of a, uh, of a point guard game where he's, you know, learned how to, you know, be really lethal in the pick and roll. Cause pretty much everybody uh, at the NBA level has to be able to handle the ball and make reads and, and ball screens and uh, do that kind of stuff. But uh, Seth Curry uh, was also uh, a great Santa Cruz warrior. Mm-hmm. So the, the connections there are, are certainly, um, you, you can, you can definitely make those connections. And I just hope that Seth is able to have a bounce back year because it was really disappointing last year with him pretty much missing the whole year in Dallas. So hopefully in Portland, uh, he'll, uh, he'll bounce back. Well, he'll be battling Nick Stauskas for backup, uh, guard duties. So it's going to be a, it's gonna be yeah. a tough, <laughs> tough road for him in Portland. What an off season Nick for the Portland Trailblazers. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, uh, on the court and, uh, and on podcast. Yeah, there you go. Um, Another guy who is very invested in the Steph Curry family, the guy that you're very familiar with or will be very familiar with, Damian Lee, Seth Curry's he, uh, Steph uh, Curry's brother-in-law, on the roster yeah, now. Yeah, future brother-in-law. They're they're getting they're getting married uh, Labor Day weekend, so just oh, it's a little over up. a week away. I was gonna say so. That's, coming up. Okay, there you go. Um, it's it's fascinating. But who do you think? Do you think Jacob Evans has a potential to crack this rotation at some point this year? Because it seemed like what they liked about him is that he's long, he plays defense, he shoots threes. He's not really a playmaker, but he got a lot of steals, got a lot of blocks and rebounds and all that kind of stuff at Cincinnati. Um, Do you think he's someone who plays a lot in the G League in Santa Cruz this year for um, the Warriors? Or do you think he's someone that like is going to bounce back between the two? Um, I mean, I think that Golden State is certainly hoping that he can have stretches during the year where he can fill in and be a solid rotational guy um, to be able to allow, you know, Andre Iguodala, Sean Livingston um, to really take some time off throughout the year and pace themselves. I think, uh, you know, one thing that's definitely going to impact Evans is whether or not Pat McCaw returns because the Warriors are still waiting uh, to see what happens there. Yeah, McCaw, what's going the on there? Free agent. He's restricted, well, and he obviously he dealt with the injury stuff, and no one's biting. What's going on with that? Well, the, the, I think uh, he and his agents are are out there kind of surveying the landscape, trying to see if they can get uh, possibly a multi-year offer from somebody, um, waiting to see if uh, if any team is looking at their cap space and decides to to make McCaw a part of their future. He can return to the Warriors at the 1.7 million mark, which is the qualifying offer. I think that's what everybody anticipates uh, will happen, that he'll eventually come back. Uh, but I mean, training camp's about a month away. 
And so you would think that, um, that he would want to make a decision here relatively soon. But uh, if he comes back, that'll put the roster at 14 uh, plus Damian Lee on a two-way deal. And the Warriors still have a second two-way contract they got to uh, fill at some point. But um, I think that Evans will spend some time in Santa Cruz. I think that um, there are going to be some stretches where he's a little bit lost in the shuffle. Um, I don't think, even though the Warriors like the fact that he was a three-year college player and is, is very smart, um, I still think that he's a little bit of a project. I mean, I, he's not your classic big man project like a Damian Jones was when the Warriors drafted him. But um, I, I think he has a chance to be a solid rotational guy, similar to what the Warriors um, saw from Pat McCaw, his rookie season. And then McCaw, of course, took a little bit of a step back last year. But uh, Evans can do a little bit of everything, and I think that he'll uh, he'll blend in pretty well with Golden State. What do you think happens with Jordan Bell's contract situation next summer? Because he is um, making the minimum right now. He's making $1.3 million and uh, he's a second-round pick and all that kind of stuff. So he is uh, he's going to be up for a pretty interesting raise. And if with yeah. DeMarcus Cousins on five... like So I guess it seems like DeMarcus will not be around no matter what next year. Like It seems like this is a one-year thing just to get his value back up and sign a monster deal with someone else next summer. Um and then Jordan Bell slides back into the five of the future. But uh, how do you think they're prioritizing uh, Jordan Bell's impending extension? Because we're talking about Clay Thompson. Obviously, his is up, and they'll have to pay him a lot to keep him around. Um, but I, I don't know. I'm I'm interested to see how they prioritize uh, Jordan Bell, and we'll learn a lot about how they see Jordan Bell as a core piece to their future. Yeah, I think that they they do view bell as a core piece i think they they are are very much planning on keeping him around uh but next summer summer of 2019 is absolutely fascinating uh clay is an unrestricted free agent all signs point to him coming back he he and his dad are uh completely in lockstep when they talk about how clay wants to stay here long term but Mm -hmm. you know they do want to get paid um you know, the, to the, to the value uh, or to what they believe he's, he's worth. And the Warriors do value clay a lot. So I don't think they're going to try to lowball him to a, a level that would make clay want to go elsewhere. Kevin Durant is going to be an unrestricted free agent next summer. Well, he has uh, a player option. Can he, opt in? can he, he can opt in for one more year, right? Well, he could opt in, but that there's a 0% chance of that happening. Really? Unless you okay. were to suffer a, a terrible uh, injury yeah. and then just opt in. But no, the way him and his agent, Rich Kleiman, have been setting this up, they've been you know taking these, these one plus one deals just mm-hmm. to provide them security of that player option. But uh, next summer is when he can re-up with the Warriors for the Supermax, the five-year, 220-plus million dollar deal. Do you think he does that? Which uh, I think... Um, you know, I don't think he'll do that because I don't know if he'll want to sign a, a deal that extends him beyond uh, what Steph Curry would even be under contract for. Because after next season, you know, Steph would only have three years left at that point. And I think that Durant will probably want to keep himself uh, some flexibility to make another decision when he would be, what, 33 years old, mm-hmm. or maybe he could go somewhere else. So I think the more likely route is a three-year plus one max, super max uh, amounts of money. 
Um, with Golden State. But with Golden State. I, I, I would be surprised. I'd be very surprised if Durant were to stay with the Warriors for just three years and never play at the Chase Center as a member of the Warriors. I think mm. it'd be... I think it would be um, a little odd considering the fact that when they had the groundbreaking ceremony for Chase Center uh, about a year and a half ago, he was the player rep that was there for it. Mm-hmm. So, and you know, at the time he said that he is very much looking forward to being a member of the Warriors when they move into the Chase Center. So unless things go drastically wrong this year, I uh, fully expect Kevin Durant to, to be with the Warriors beyond next season. But back to your original question about Jordan Bell, yes. He, I mean, he may put himself into a position with uh, the way he plays in a 2018-19 season where another team offers him a pretty lucrative deal as a restricted free agent, and the Warriors are not going to want to see Bell leave. So uh, they may have to, to match that deal, and their luxury tax bill will just be astronomical. Yeah, I think they're what, play, paying like $22 million? in uh, luxury tax payments like they're 20 i think the threshold's what 122 and they're like 140 something over i think that's what it right is. but then that's but it's but then you have to take that number and there's a cup you multiply it by a couple factors yeah um because of the different luxury tax brackets so th- their bill <laughs> their luxury tax sorry their luxury tax bill uh as of now before they even fill out their final two roster uh spots is it's somewhere in like the $47 million range or something like that. Plus the, you know, 130 million in, in salary alone. So it's, uh, <laughs> the numbers are big. Yeah. Um, don't forget that they're still paying Jason Thompson this year, $945,000. That is correct. They stretched him a couple years ago and he's still getting a check. Shout out to him. Cause he's been in the league. What? Three years, two years. I feel like he, we have not seen him in a while. It has. It's been a while. I think he might still be playing overseas though. Still, Still uh, getting paychecks in multiple different places. So Clay is staying, in your opinion. Duran is staying. I, I do wonder, like, if you had to guess, because I feel like that's where the conversation around the Warriors is shifting, is like, who's the first one to leave because they're not all staying forever. Um, obviously, DeMarcus Cousins is not, they're not going to be able to afford him after this year. Like, they just, they lucked out. Correct. Um him making five point it's still just the he is one of eight players in nba history to average 25 10 and 5 like and he's just signing for five million dollars and at his age five million three hundred and thirty seven thousand it's just insane um iguodala it seems like are we sure he plays after next year's uh contract ends like i wonder if he like walks away after that point um i could see that but I don't know. Walk away after what year? Uh, 2019-2020 season. Because I believe that's the last year of his deal, right? Yeah. So and he'll, he'll be make, 35, uh, 36. He might be 36 at that point. I think he'd be 36. If he turned 30, yeah, he'd be 36. Yeah. And it's not like his game is um, built for more, lo- uh, like a larger loss of athleticism. So... Uh, I don't know. I could see Andre Godala. Am I crazy for thinking this? These are his last two years in the NBA. No, I don't think I don't think that's crazy. I think that's why he was looking to get as much money as he possibly could in the summer of seventeen when he was a free agent. So, yeah, oh, wouldn't surprise me at all. He'll make uh, he'll make thirty two million dollars total over the next two years, and um, he's made a lot of money in his career. He's a borderline. I actually don't even think it's borderline. I think he should be a Hall of Famer. 
uh, when it's all said and done. So uh, I know a lot of people might say, what? He was only an all-star one time, or maybe it's two. But uh, the NBA Hall of Fame, uh, I think, does it does it right in that they're a little bit more inclusive than uh, than like the Baseball Hall of Fame, where it's almost impossible to get in. So mm-hmm. um, we'll see. Yeah, I can't pretend to care about Hall of Fame stuff. I've never watched it, never really <laughs> cared. I don't understand the appeal. It's like award shows and everything else. I've just, I've never sat down and watched or cared or like, I, I don't know. I don't really care. I, I, I'm good. Yeah. I understand no, if you're I, the I'm player you I'm care. Um, that's a cool thing to say for the rest of your life and get in that club. But if you're not in the club or you're, I, I don't know. It's it's not for me. Like all-star games? Oh, God. Not for me. I, I cancel I them all. Watch, I don't watch all-star games. Just say that you were an all-star and then don't play the games. I'm with Coach Thorpe on that. Uh, it's uh, it, yeah. it shows it, it's not for me, um, but I don't know who it's for. Only bad things can happen. Right. Um, but if you had to pick between the big four, because it based on basketball Twitter, I feel like the general sentiment is Draymond is the most likely guy to leave first. And I don't share that opinion. For me, I, I know this might sound Neither crazy. Neither do I. I still think it's Durant. I think Durant's going to bounce. And I don't know when, but my big theory is that he's going to play with LeBron at some point. I think that is something they've both, th- they've both thought about. Like, they did the car ride with Kerry Champion. Like, I I don't know. I could see Kevin Durant and LeBron James playing on the same team in, like, the next couple of years. Well, then it would be in L.A. Yeah. Because LeBron sat there for at least three years yeah. uh, with the player option in year four. Um, I could see it. Yeah, I mean, Durant is an interesting guy. He, uh, you know, obviously with him playing for the Warriors the last couple of years, I've followed him uh, a lot closer than I did when he was in Oklahoma City. Um, I think a lot of people don't really know uh, what Kevin Durant is, is thinking at any given moment or uh, stretch of his career. But um, that's why I, I told you that I don't think that he'll re-up for the, for the five-year uh, next summer. I think it would be only for a couple years, so I think he does want uh, the flexibility. But, but we'll see. And, you know, he um, is entitled to do whatever he wants to do, and uh, it, it, it's just been incredible to get to watch him night in and night out uh, because uh, he is a, he, he's special, the stuff that he can do. And I think he can get even better on defense or at least be more consistent on that end. Um, and I think that you're even going to see him uh, show some, some new wrinkles uh, offensively because, you know, last regular season was uh, frustrating in that, uh, you know, he and Steph didn't even play that many games together during the regular season. It was only like half the game. Yeah, Steph missed Steph a lot of time. 30. It was a rare year because he, yeah. he was past the ankle stuff. And this was his first like serious injury since the ankle stuff. What do you miss? Like 45 games? 40 something. No, he he played in 51. Or played in 51, yeah, um, that's what it was, yeah. Played in 51, yeah. So he missed, you know, 31 games, but even the game he uh, got hurt in, he got hurt a minute and a half into it. So you, you don't even really count that one. So you know, my point is is that I think that he and Steph are, are, are still learning how to play with each other. And I think that, uh, you know, when you finally get into that comfort zone, uh, things are only going to get better for, for him and Steph because they do and they can complement each other really well. So, um, yeah, th- this year for the Warriors, it, with, with Nad Boogie into it, it's going to be entertainment value. It's just going to be insane. 
Who do you think the Warriors see as their biggest challenge in the West still? Do you think it's still the Rockets for them? Because Curry was quoted talking about like what he was most interested in last offseason was how two high IQ guards and Harden and Chris Paul were going to coexist and figure things out. And we know how that Western Conference final series went. Um, I'm still under the impression that they would have won that series even if Paul didn't get hurt. I just think they would have done something and still would have stepped up. And um, I just feel like they're a team that likes having their uh, – backs pushed against the wall like i think that's something that kevin durant especially likes um but i i don't know i think it's not the rockets anymore i think people have gone way too far the other way with the mellow stuff and everything else of like oh it's over like they still we when they they re-sign capella which is critical for them and like we know what the record is when capella chris paul and james harden are on the floor together and they start and they play a lot of minutes like they're really hard to beat when those three guys are on the floor at the same time um that said, the Harden offseason pictures don't make me feel great. Yeah. I'm a little concerned. Um, he got his MVP, finally, rightly so. Um, little concern there, but I don't know. I'm not really all that worried about them like falling out of the top four in the West. Now, am I sure they're going to be the biggest challenge of the Warriors in the West? I don't think it's the Lakers, so calm down, Laker fans. I don't really think it's the Rockets anymore. I definitely don't think it's the Thunder. I think it might be the Jazz. And... It just depends on how quickly Donovan Mitchell turns into a superstar. Like he was great last year, obviously, but it does feel like when they have Gobert, just the difference between having him in the lineup and not um, adding more talent. They kept everybody. We know how good that defense is. They're team first team. They're basically Boston Celtics West. And I I don't know. I I, I feel like they're the second best team in the West. Am I crazy for that? You're not crazy, but you're wrong. Okay. <laughs> okay, who's the second best team for you? No. Well, I, you're going to think that I'm crazy and that I'm wrong. I think, actually, the Thunder are going to be in the Western Conference Finals. I think oh, that wow. um, I think that losing Carmelo is going to be a great thing for them. Uh, I think that it's going to make things a little bit more set in stone as opposed, you know, I mean, in terms of, like, who um, – who's getting the ball at what time. Now I know that Russ thinks that he should take every shot every single time, as we saw in game six against Utah with 43 shots. Mm -hmm. Um, I just think that with, with Paul George now being there committed long-term, I think the organization is going to be able to kind of take a deep breath and feel uh, more secure about their place. I think that, uh, you know, them getting, to the to the Western Conference Finals is contingent upon Russell Westbrook adapting a little bit. Like he just flat out needs to to change his game or his mindset and be more of a team player as opposed to doing it his way. Um, but I think when you look at uh, at just their their depth, I think Nerlens Noel actually could be able to to thrive a little bit. Patrick Patterson took a step back last year, but you know he had knee surgery right before the season started. I think he's going to be better. He's an X factor for um, them. He has to be healthy, I think, for this to happen. He does. He does. And Stephen Adams uh, is is a great center. So I just think that uh, that they'll be able to to navigate their way uh, better this year, as long as you know Andre Robertson stays healthy. Because you know when they lost him, everything really did change for them last year. Um, I do agree with you though that the Rockets um, have taken a step back for sure on paper. I mean, they're going to miss Trevor Ariza. They're going to miss Luke Richard and Bob Mute. Um, you know, I think that uh, Chris Paul, now that uh, he signed his his four year one hundred and sixty deal, um, 
you know, maybe he, uh, maybe he relaxes a little bit. Um, so I, I do agree that it's, it's kind of wide open after the Warriors in terms of who could be in that second spot. It really wouldn't surprise me, um, if it was, uh, four or five different teams, but I'm going to go ahead and, and, and go with the Thunder this early on. Can we point out that the Jazz did not really struggle taking out the Thunder last year? Can we point that out? Yes, but Carmelo Anthony was on that team. True. I mean, but like the Thunder, I mean, the Jazz are just getting a year older. Um, Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell. Like, I just, I don't see a way the one for this thing Jazz I will team say to, about Gobert. I don't know. Okay, yeah, go ahead. The one thing I'll say about Gobert, and I, I know that he is extremely valuable, and they're... Uh, their numbers when he's on the court versus when he's not on the court or when he's in the lineup, it, it's night and day. But against the Warriors specifically, his impact is just not as as strong because the Warriors they suck him away from the rim, and he simply can't he can't contain Steph or Durant or or Clay or, or anybody on the wing, um, and so he's just not as valuable against the Warriors specifically now in theory, they wouldn't play the Warriors until the Western Conference Finals. So could they beat everybody else in the West in a uh, in a seven-game series? I, I suppose they could. I, I think it does hinge on, uh, on Donovan Mitchell. Like you said, is he going to be an all-star uh, this year? Uh, and if, if he catapults himself into that level, I then yeah, yes. the Jazz... Yeah then the Jazz do have a shot. Yeah, I'm not ruling them out. Absolutely not. And by the way, let's go ahead and throw this caveat out. Not as in they have a shot to beat the Warriors because nobody has a shot to beat the Warriors at full health. Even if the Warriors lost one of their big four, they would still be the heavy favorite to win it all, especially now that LeBron's in the West. Like, they may not even have to play LeBron this year. Well, Come I time, mean, they may... if they didn't have one of their big four against Houston last year, they, they probably don't win that series. Well, I mean, they didn't I mean, have you a saw what happened when went out. Ah, uh, if they didn't have He's not like, one of the four. Yeah, if they didn't have are we sure if they didn't have Kevin Durant, they still would have I, I guess maybe Kevin Durant it's not I don't know. Draymond, maybe he wasn't I, I don't know. I could still see them no, on that series. No, yeah. Draymond Draymond's importance is, yeah. is is off the charts. Maybe Steph, which is crazy to think about. Like if Quinn Cook was just playing Steph role and <laughs> uh, shot yeah, there you go. No, I'm just uh trolling. Um yeah, I just the Warriors. There's not much more to say about them right now. Like they're fine. So much of like it's just if they're healthy, they're going to win. And it's kind of crazy to think about it like that. But it does feel like for another year, everybody's playing for second, and uh, it's gonna be weird seeing them play a non-LeBron team in the finals. But I'm glad we are done with the Cleveland Golden State rivalry. It it was last year was yeah. enough. I'm glad we're moving on. Uh, I'm completely with you. But the you know one thing that I, I do think people need to start thinking about is a Warriors-Celtics finals in which Boston's fully healthy. The, I'm not saying that the Celtics would win the series. Uh, absolutely not. But I think that series goes goes to six games. I really do. I, I think Boston has a chance to be absolutely awesome. Like I think they'll have the best record in the NBA next season. Ooh. Uh, See, I don't even think they're the during best the regular in the East season. next year. Oh, you think Toronto with a healthy Kawhi? Uh, no, I think the Budenholzer, Giannis, Milwaukee Bucks are finishing number one in the East. You do not think that. I do think that. I think Giannis is MVP next year. I think this is the best coach he's ever had. I think this system makes a lot more sense with Brooke Lopez, Ursan, everybody else. No facilitating Jabari Parker. 
I I really think this team's going to win. Like Mike Budenholzer won 50, uh, 60 games with uh, Damari Carroll, Kyle Korver, Jeff Teague, um, Al Horford, and Paul Millsap. It would not surprise me if they approach 60 or come close to that in the regular season. I think their ceiling is the third seed in the East. I don't think they're better than Toronto or Boston. Okay. I mean, my hierarchy come play. But hey, is, uh, it'll, be, it'll be fun to see that happen. Yeah, I mean, I think my hierarchy right now is uh, come playoff time. If I really, really had to bet everything of who's going to win the East, number one would be the Raptors winning the East. Number two would be the Bucks. Number three would be the Celtics. Number four would be the Sixers. Uh, yeah, I mean, I know sure. it's kind of, I, 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 I know people love the good. Celtics and I think they have the depth. All that stuff is great. I, I love what the Celtics have done. Um I don't know. I just I'm interested to see how they integrate Kyrie and Gordon Hayward back into this group. I'm interested to see how Jason Tatum fits with these guys uh, come closing time. Like the Sixers, I just they've had a disastrous offseason. I feel like still don't have a GM. Didn't get Kawhi. Didn't get LeBron. Yeah. Didn't get Paul George. They haven't solved their half court problems. Like we saw what happened when they had to throw the ball to Joel Embiid by himself and just figure things out against the Celtics. Like it's just they need somebody else, and it's supposed to be Markel Fultz, but it's the jury's still out. Like if Markel Fultz becomes a superstar, yeah, they're they're in the conversation again. But if he's a rotational guy and um just not doesn't he's not gonna live up to the number one overall pick, then they have a ceiling. And it's a good playoff team, but they have no shot at the finals. Um Giannis is the best player the in the good East. The good news yeah. is the East the East finally is very strong at the top. Like yes. really strong. Yeah, those top four I think are just I'm just glad Giannis has a good coach now. He almost beat the with Celtics you. with no coach last year. They went seven with Boston with no coach. Yeah, but Boston didn't have Kyrie or Gordon Hayward. Uh, that's fair. But I'm just saying, like, Giannis, come playoff time is just... It, it, it's going to be hard for me to bet against the best player in every series. And he's going to be the best player in every series outside of Kawhi. Yeah, I, I'd say individually he, he is the... Yeah, that's fair. So I, I'm I'm excited. Like... No matter if it's Raptors for Celtics or Bucks for Celtics come playoff time, I am I'm going to be enthralled. I will be uh yes. watching very closely because we're gonna get a good test between like great coaching and great depth versus like just having the best player on the court. Like Agreed. it's it's gonna be fascinating. Um but yeah, true. This is hopefully gonna be Jay- a- hopefully Jason Kidd's not listening. No, no. He should just take a college job. I could see him winning a national title with the college team. Like, go the Kevin Ollie route. Go back. Obviously, it didn't work out uh, in the later stages at UConn, but go be a high sc- a college coach. Like, why is he not the coach of Cal right now? Well, he actually he, he said something a couple weeks ago that maybe he would coach in the Bay Area at some point. Mm, so see. maybe that does happen. Maybe that does happen down the line. Kwanzo Martin left for Mizzou. Just go coach Cal. Right. I don't know why it makes too much sense. Mark Jackson, Coach Pepperdine, it was your. It's it's where you should be, and uh, Jason <laughs> Kidd should be coaching um, Cal. That that it all makes okay. sense. Yeah, I'm solving everybody's Agreed. problems. You are. Yeah. You're just you're looking out for everybody. It's really nice of you. Thank you, thank you, Drew. So, um, it is a Thursday night. Is there anything coming out on your end that we should check out? Uh, no, we're kind of in a, a little bit of a hiatus from NBA stuff for about a month until training camp opens up and then it'll be uh full steam ahead covering the Warriors, uh, with podcasts and our, our TV show, Warriors Outsiders. And, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to it cause I'm very bored. I want the NBA back immediately. Yeah. Um, 
give me like last thing, and then we'll go. Give me your G League player to watch this year that you think uh, you're excited about um, watching um, over the course of the season. So one guy who is uh, most likely going to be in Santa Cruz for the whole season is Marcus Derrickson. Uh, he was a six seven, you know, kind of three slash four out of uh, Georgetown. Played three years at Georgetown, and then he played for the Warriors in summer league this year. And he has signed a deal with uh, the franchise that basically he'll be uh, in training camp with Golden State, and then he'll get waived and he'll be uh, an affiliate player in Santa Cruz. And uh, he can shoot it. He's a good rebounder. Um, he's a really smart guy. We got to talk to him in, in summer league. He seems very serious about being a professional. And I think he's a guy that uh, that could end up, uh, you know, getting a call up and having a chance to stay in the league. So I would say. Marcus Derrickson. Okay, I like it. Um, he sounds like a made-up 2K player, but I will take your word for it that he's real. I mean, there's a Jared Vanderbilt Look him up. Look him up. who apparently played at Kentucky last year and is on the yeah. Nuggets, I want to say. Um, yeah, it's it, that's the greatest part about the G League infestation in the regular in the NBA roster is just the names that we're seeing. And I'm like, is that real? I could see this guy getting a 10-day yeah. on the Rockets. I feel like he was there. Speaking of 10 days, Bruno yeah. Caboclo, ten, uh, the Exhibit yep. 10 deal. God, I hope that works out. I will never quit Bruno. That's what uh, the Exhibit 10, that's what Marcus Derrickson is on. I think that's exactly what it is. It's the 10. coolest name for any contract ever invented. Like Whoever came up with that name needs to be in charge of every other contract name because mini MLE doesn't have the same ring to it as Exhibit 10. Like That just sounds super exhibit. serious. I like it. Yeah. I'm with you. Okay, great. Uh, Drew, we can find you on Twitter at Drew Schiller. We can listen to you on the Warriors Outsiders podcast and video show, and you're a Pac-12 network basketball analyst where you'll be watching Jason Kidd run the sidelines for the Cal Golden Bears yeah, in the coming exactly. years. Um, and then, of course, your Santa Cruz Warriors game analysis where you will be um, covering a G League superstar and not a made-up NBA 2K League uh, guy this season. Correct. And then Steph Curry is a brother-in-law so it's gonna be a fun year for you yep damien lee mm-hmm. it will yeah, i'm looking forward to it and that's why i want it all to be here there you go drew i really appreciate you taking the time and uh we will have to talk again soon sir looking forward to it thank you thanks drew and that'll do it for today's episode of the chase thomas podcast i uh, just want to remind you guys if you like today's episode and you are subscribed on apple podcast or itunes i would really appreciate if you could take a second leave the show a five-star rating and a review if uh, you're not an Apple podcast listener, remember you can find the show on Spotify, TuneIn Radio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, uh, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Uh, be sure to check out ChaseThomasPodcast.com where you can access all of my previous episodes and also find all my writing. I'm writing there fairly often. And also follow me on Twitter at Chase underscore Thomas and like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Chase Thomas Writer. Uh, Thank you for your support, and we'll be back with another episode very soon. Thanks, guys. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.